0: Date was Wednesday, the twenty ninth of January, eighteen sixty nine. Thirty five year old small farmer Edward Tracy left his home at Ballynalty at eight o'clock in the morning. His destination was Tipperary Town. The father of three visited the town on business. This was not a fair day in Tipperary Town. It wasn't a market day, just a regular Wednesday. Among his different jobs of work in the town that day. Edward borrowed £25 from a man named Mara. He used that money to pay another man for the purchase of some meadow for the forthcoming season. This was all quite standard, your typical commercial activity in the agricultural economy of those days. His day was apparently uneventful, with no confrontations, and as sometimes happened when the rural farmer went into any Irish town and business, a small drop of alcohol was taken. But in Edward's case, apparently not a lot. Edward continued his journey around Tipperary Town. He called into Mara's Chandler's shop just before midday. Tracy went away but called back about two o'clock. He told the Mara brothers that he was going home and he shook hands with them. At around three o'clock in the afternoon, Edward was finished his business in Tipperary Town and decided to head home to Ballinolte. Edward travelled by ass and cart. Some way out of town, one of the wheels on the cart let him down, and he was forced to seek assistance at the home of Thomas Ryan and his wife at Boer Crow. The only assistance that Edward required from the Ryans was to store his groceries and to park his broken-down cart when he went away for assistance. He stored some rope, a shovel, some tea and sugar, and a bottle of spirits with Mrs. Ryan before he unyoked the donkey and drove him down the road without the cart. The Ryans obliged, and there was nothing more eventful about Edward's short visit to their door. Thomas Ryan and his wife were among the last people to see Edward alive. Sometime after four o'clock, a man named Edmund English was walking through Barronstown. As he was coming out on the road at Grotonstown, he came across the figure of a man lying against the ditch. The immediate area around the stricken victim was covered in blood. Edmund was frightened, and his immediate reaction was not to offer any assistance, but to run to the next house down the road. Something told him that offering assistance would be futile at this point. As he ran from the scene, he encountered Edmund Harding and James Lahey, and excitedly told them that he saw that man, Tracy, on the side of the road. He believed he was dead. The three men returned together to the fallen Edward Tracy. Edmund Harding crouched beside him and raised his head. The victim was indeed dead. His throat was cut almost from ear to ear. He clutched a walking stick in one hand, and another stick lay on the road nearby. Harding later described a scene with so much blood that it looked like a cow had been slaughtered on the spot, rather than a human being. The men attempted to search Tracy's pockets, but were spooked by the amount and horror of the blood. They opened two buttons on his waistcoat and blood gushed out. Harding described going stiff with fright. It's not clear if they were attempting to steal from the dead man. It is likely, however, that their intentions were honourable, because it later transpired that the dead man had a quantity of loose silver in his pocket, as well as a blank cheque for £50. There was no apparent attempt to steal this money, so it seems that theft was not the motive for this attack. The victim's face was quite cold, and he wore a thin cravat below the wound across his neck portion of the cravat had become embedded in the wound. Edmund English and James Lahey agreed to wait with the body as Edmund Harding hurried away to report the news to Jasper Bolton, a justice of the peace who lived just 240 yards away. On his way to fetch Bolton, he called to John Travis at the lodge and told him what had happened. Harding returned with Bolton around half an hour later. It was after Bolton's arrival that the process of the justice system took over this situation. Bolton sent word to the Monard Constabulary and a force of police officers was soon at the scene. By six o'clock... The news of the killing reached Tipperary town, and a further contingent of policemen under the leadership of Sub-Inspector Saville made their way to the area. Dr. Nadine from Tipperary arrived at the scene between 7 and 7.30 that evening. Remember, this was the end of January, and was quite likely a dark, desolate and unforgiving scene. The doctor later described arriving to see the dead man who was lying on the roadside near the back lodge of Ballycastine House. He found a large wound inflicted by a sharp instrument such as a knife or a razor. It was extended from a little below and in front of the jawbone, across the front of the throat to the opposite angle of the jaw. The larynx was opened and the cartide artery and jugular vein were divided. There were no other marks on the victim's body apart from a slight scratch to the forehead and one on the little finger of the left hand. Despite experiencing such a horrific death, the victim actually suffered very little violence apart from the fatal wound. It may be that he was taken by surprise and had no time to defend himself or fight back in any way. In fact, the doctor believed that the wound was probably administered by someone standing on the right side and behind the victim. The throat was cut from left to right. A large-scale search of the region was underway, with all of the constabulary officers remaining out all night. Soon after the doctor's initial investigation was completed at the scene, the body of Edward Tracy was taken to his own house for the final time. The overnight search led to the arrest of two men named Andrew Carroll and Michael Byrne, who were neighbours of Edward Tracy. It appears that the only grounds for their arrest was that they were known to be on unfriendly terms with the deceased. Tracy had been involved in lawsuits against both of them at one time or another. Byrne was in Tipperary Town at the same time as Tracy, on the day of the murder and remained there for some time after the ill-fated man departed. An inquest was held in front of the coroner T.J. Morrissey the next day and it failed to apportion blame upon any individual. At that early stage there was no suspect or suspects. The inquest jury found that, and I quote, Edward Tracy came by his death at Grotonstown on the 27th of January, 1869, by having his throat cut by some person or persons unknown. The proceeding ended, and the evidence failed to throw any light on what was later described as a mysterious and frightful tragedy. Andrew Carroll and Michael Byrne were released from custody because there was absolutely no evidence to justify their continued detention. Or was there? That would seem to have been the end of this sorry saga, but for the fact that the police investigation continued. Although the only suspects in this case, and the word suspects is used advisedly here, were discharged after the inquest, the police, in the person of Sub-Inspector Saville, were not satisfied. At some point subsequent to his release from custody, Constable Hugh Hughes rearrested Michael Byrne on suspicion of the murder of Edward Tracy. Everything in the case, from a public perspective at least, went silent until late January that same year, 1869, and Michael Byrne appeared at the Summer Assizes in Clonmel, indicted for the murder of Edward Tracy. There were a few standout witnesses in the case that the Crown attempted to mount against Michael Byrne. Johanna Reardon lived near Byrne, and they travelled together to Tipperary Town on the day of the murder. She was related to Byrne by marriage. She and Byrne were also on their own personal errands in the town and spent much of those hours together including a visit to Mara's shop on their journey home they picked up a young man named Edward Frewen at a spot called Massey's hollow they gave him a lift home on their ass and cart about a quarter of a mile along the road they passed Edward Tracy they saw another man pass him but didn't know the identity of that individual there were many witnesses to Johanna and Michael's journey home that day and she was interrogated at length. Essentially, one of the key pieces of evidence against Michael Byrne was that his cart passed the victim on the road in the time just before he was murdered. It seems that the Crown chose to hang their case on a couple of factors, neither of which added up to any solid evidence against the accused man. Edward Tracy's wife testified that her husband and the defendant shared land side by side on the estate of Major Gasson. The last time she saw her husband and Barnes scolding, as she put it, was about three months earlier. Each man was standing on his own land, speaking in angry tones to one another across the boundary. She confirmed that her husband Edward was not a violent man, although he did strike her once. On another occasion he found fault with the way she had prepared dinner for a servant, but thankfully. He didn't strike her that day. One of their key witnesses was Professor Blythe from Queen's College Cork. He was an expert in chemistry and was called in as an expert witness on blood spatters found on the trousers of Michael Byrne, confiscated from his home on the night of the murder. Unfortunately for the prosecution, he could not confirm that much of the blood was necessarily fresh. Some of it could have been present for up to four or five weeks. Much of it was definitely from living mammals, but he could not confirm if this was human or animal. Other reddish hues that were speculated to be blood may actually have been earth or clay. He wasn't very helpful to the Crown's case. Another prosecution witness was Daniel Conway, and his job was to try and inject some sort of commercial motive for the killing of Edward Tracy. Conway testified that he was doing some business for Major Gasson, on whose property Tracy and Michael Byrne lived. There was much disagreement among the different parties during the previous four years. Over things like trespassing and land occupancy. Conway tried to act as some sort of mediator or go-between. He was after all a land agent for Major Gasson. The parties would not agree to anything he suggested however. One of the points of disagreement was the land vacated by a man named Lahy. Both Burns and Tracy wanted the land and Conway suggested they divide it. Neither side would agree to this so the land was given to somebody else. Conway confirmed that he knew the defendant, Michael Byrne, for quite a long time. 26 witnesses were examined in the case. This was probably quite a high number as 19th century rural murder trials went in Ireland. We must remember that the case did not always proceed in court along the lines with which we might be familiar today, either in person or watching on television. Before either judge, prosecutor or defence counsel could address the jury, they made it known that they had already reached their verdict their minds were made up there was a flurry of discussion between the bench and the two sides as to whether or not the jury should be charged as was the usual procedure by the court the foreman suddenly announced that michael byrne would be acquitted of the murder of edward tracy after a bit more over and back between the parties this was formalized the judge announced that he agreed entirely with the verdict of the jury he concurred that the prosecution had put forward every bit of evidence that they could by way of thoroughly investigating the case, including material favorable to the accused. Unfortunately for the prosecution, none of it added up to anything more than grave suspicion, and therefore there was no need for a guilty verdict. All of this begs the question, why bring the case in the first place? And I'm afraid that the answer to that question must remain forever buried alongside Edward Tracy as part of Tipperary's hidden history.